too. Um, if you happen to be a first-time guest, a special welcome to you, and if you'd be willing to fill out the card in front of you and just give us a little information about yourself, drop it in the offering box. It gives us a chance to know you, to know that you're here, and to send a letter of greeting in response. If any are interested in baptism, we are preparing a baptism service. If you're interested in membership, please don't hesitate to speak to us. And better yet, if you would fill out the card and just identify who you are and that you're interested in membership or baptism, we can get back to you. Just a reminder, this is the first of the month, so this is our communion Sunday. At the end of the service, we'll be partaking of the cup and the bread together as believers. And if you're a believer here this morning, we tell you that you're welcome to join with us. Uh, for those that are out in the other room, there is a tray out there for you as well. You can get, you can get a cup uh, now or later, or there will be a deacon out there to serve you. Um, just a couple of highlights on our uh, bulletin you have before you, I trust. We have our men's breakfast coming up this Saturday. Men, it is important if you're going to be there for the breakfast and the study out in the foyer. There is a sign-up sheet on the bulletin board. Please put your name and please give your email so that we can send you the study notes this week. Tim will be preparing those when he gets back from his trip and he'll send those to you. So make sure you put an email address so we can send the study sheet to you. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet for Table Talk. If you get the Table Talk devotion in the past or you would like to get that now, you get a discounted rate if we do it together as a church. They give us a discount as a group. So if you want Table Talk devotional magazine for this year, there is also a sign-up sheet out on the table in the foyer. Make sure you put that name, your name down to renew yourself for the next year, or if you'd like to be included in that subscription, you're more than welcome to do so. This week, we're having our small group fellowship studies, both on Monday and Tuesday. If you're part of those groups, make note of that. Don't forget, Monday and Tuesday this week. If you'd like to be part of one of those small group studies, Please let us know. Just let the office know, and we will give you some of the options that you have both here in Anacortes, and there's a group that meets in Mount Vernon as well. Please note some of the prayer highlights, and this week we are praying for the Pointer family. Jean and Lida lost their son-in-law, so if you could be praying for them, the grief of the family, and God's grace would be present with them. Make note of those prayer requests, and we just encourage you, be faithful to pray for one another and give praise to our God. Thank you. Good morning. Our scripture reading today will be Psalm 130. If you're using the Bible in the chair in front of you, it will be on page 451. I made an announcement at the business meeting, but I want to make it again in more detail. Steve Diebler and I will be leading a team uh, this spring to Montlemar, southern France. The dates are May 23rd through June 1st. We are partnering with an organization called Synergy. They are focused on reaching over 30 different French-speaking countries with the gospel. They do this mainly by printing and distributing Bibles, commentaries, and other uh, types of Christian literature. Our team will be partnering with a print shop we will be working in the shop to help with their goal of sending out 26,000 Bibles and books before the summer. We will also assist in a local cafe run by a missionary 
who uh, uses that cafe to build relationships and evangelize the French citizens. There's also a local church in the area, about 50 to 60 members. We will be attending the Sunday we are there and looking for ways to partner with our brothers and sisters at that church. Each team member going will have the opportunity to take part in the service by sharing their testimony. France is considered an unreached people group, meaning it is less than 2% evangelical. This trip is a strategic trip, not only that we are going to an unreached people group, but because there are long-term needs in the print shop, cafe, and in the local church. Two members of the organization will be coming with us, both of whom are bilingual in French, and they will be here tentatively February 22nd through the 23rd, and they're hoping to meet some of you. Our plan is to host something here, but just put that in your calendars. It is tentative right now. Uh, you can hear more information about the trip, about the organization then. Those on the team are myself and Wendy, Stephen, Katie Diebler, Josh Diebler, Leah Griffin, Josiah, who goes to a different church, but he is part of our spin group, and Ariana Bontrager. I think that's everyone. So over the next few weeks, just be praying for this opportunity. Be praying for the church in Mont Lamar. Be praying for the Christians in France. Be considering how you might want to partner with us in this endeavor. Uh, with that being said, let's read Psalm 130. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I will wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for being a God who listens, who condescends to hear the petitions of his people, who answers prayer and delights to hear from your people. We can come to you only because our sins are forgiven. We have access to the throne because Jesus has made a way. And we must confess that we do not come to you as often as we should. We neglect and at times forsake you, Lord. Each day we show there are far more important things to do than bow humbly before you. There are far too many idols in our lives we so quickly run to for safety, for security, whatever the reason. And we ask this morning that you forgive us of those vain pursuits. Make us right with you, God. Create in us an unwavering and unceasing affection for you. 
We wait for you this morning. We pray that you would speak to your people. Wake us up from our spiritual sleepiness. We pray that you would save those this morning who are not saved. May our congregation be one which encourages one another daily in the Lord. Thank you, Father. Pray that our gathering, our worship, would be honoring to you and glorifying. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us now as we sing? Open with Before the Throne of God above.
Sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope, with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began. was redeemed, only beauty remains. My orphan heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was arrested, my life began. Oh, your grace, so Washes over me. You have made me new now. Life begins with you. It's your Your grace so free 
Thank you. You may be seated. If you would join me in Romans chapter 7, please. You can follow along as I read, beginning in verse 12, down through the end of the chapter. We will be finishing chapter 7 this morning, and so our main study will be out of verse 18 to verse 20. But let's read the context, beginning verse 12, Romans chapter 7. Paul writes, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a curse of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold in bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am who will set me free from this body of death. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. Father in heaven, it is our prayer, our request, our plea to you, that you will take us by your spirit, guide us in your truth, give us understanding, an understanding that equips us, enables us by your grace to walk in the truth of your righteousness, to walk in your holiness, to live in the goodness of your law and your commandments. Give us hearts that are humble and submissive. And we pray that you would grant to us spiritual ears that are ready to receive what the counsel of your word has for your church, for your people. We want to be sanctified this morning. So I pray that our hearts and our minds will be fixed on the glory of Christ, the redeeming work of our Father in heaven, on the, the enabling graces and power of the Holy Spirit that will be able to set aside the distractions and the cares of this life for these moments so that we can give you the honor of our worship this morning. Grant me the ability to speak clearly on these things as well. We give ourselves into your hands as your church, as your redeemed people, in the name of Christ, your Son, and our Savior. Amen. Last week, I introduced our study of this last portion of chapter 7 with a couple of personal examples that highlighted the importance of word choices and context to understand a matter correctly. 
And this is so necessary in understanding any portion of God's word and how the word applies to our lives. It's very important in this portion of Romans chapter 7, as we've stated before, because of the difficult nature of the words that Paul chooses. But I want you to notice at front here that Paul uses very graphic and very stirring words, even words that are so dramatic that it causes scholars to wrestle over the meaning of this text. Just this week, I was driving to the office, and on the radio, there was an advertisement for some kind of dietary supplement that helps with weight loss. And the description they gave is, is really caught my attention. There's certain things that amuse me, but this one very much did. This, this uh, weight loss supplement is described as a powerful fat incinerator, a fat incinerator. That inspires me to say, I need this because I can have a beach body by weekend. 125 pounds can be lost in four and a half days. You got a fat incinerator. Those words are meant to capture your attention. They're graphic. They're probably false as all get out. But it nonetheless captures your attention. This is what Paul does, not with false words, but with very dramatic words that captures our attention. And as we've said for the past couple of weeks, they're so dramatic, in fact, they almost appear to contradict what Paul has said in other passages, when in fact, if we look at the context, they don't contradict at all. And so that's what we've chosen to do in looking at these last few verses of Romans chapter 7. We're looking at the words in particular we're going to read this text, understand it literally, but we're going to keep it in the context that Paul has given to us here, because context is essential. You look at the first six verses where we looked at the believer's second marriage. Paul used some pretty graphic language to describe the believer's relationship to the law, both before he was saved and after that believer was saved. And so he uses marriage, death in a marriage, and remarriage after death to give us that dramatic picture that before we came to Christ, we were terrible law keepers. We couldn't keep the law, though we thought we could. And we came to faith and we died to that old person of law keeping. We were raised up in grace. And Paul says we were married to a new person, the resurrected one, Jesus Christ. In the second section of Romans chapter 7, we see more graphic language. Paul is expressing his own past history with the law as a Jewish law keeper before Christ met him on the road to Damascus. In the keeping of the law, he thought he was alive to God, on good terms with God. But he was living his salvation, living his justification on his own terms, on his own merits. And when Christ found him on the road to Damascus, and re-energized him, caused him to be born again and spirit-filled. There, three days in Damascus, bringing that man to faith in Christ. His eyes were opened, he was awakened, and he realized the law could never save me. I thought it could, but it could not. I was a law keeper. I am no more. At least a law keeper from the standpoint that it could earn my salvation. And once he met Christ, he came to a new understanding. The law showed him his sin, a sin that actually killed him. It deceived him to think he could earn the merits of God on his own terms. These are dramatic words, and it gets more intense, beginning in verse 14, where we're looking at the believer's law conflict. And we use verse 12 and 13, remember, as an introduction to these verses. But looking at... 
this last section of Romans chapter 7, Paul now shows what the believer's law conflict or conflict with the law is going to look like. This is as born-again believers, and that's the interpretational context we use here. Paul is speaking about himself in the present tense as a mature apostle. And that's where these words get a bit challenging because of the very choices he makes in phrases and word selection. It's going to be important for us to see these words because there appear to be three movements here in verse 14 through verse 25. And these three movements, if you'll notice, they're almost repetitious, aren't they? So we're going to look at those as three repetitions. We looked at the first of those last week. And it's important with this dramatic language Three repetitions, we understand if the Holy Spirit repeats himself three times, these words must be important. So I'm not going to skip over them. I'm going to repeat them three times too. It was intended to be studied in this way. Paul is repeating himself, driven by the Holy Spirit, because of the seriousness of this subject. Last week we started these with looking at verse 14 to 17, a spiritual law that was given to a fleshly people. And again, he's speaking in the context of a man that has been born again. He now has a new perspective, a new understanding of the law. How do we as believers look at the law? He showed us that in verse 7 to verse 13. Now in the verses before us, that spiritual law is given to a fleshly people. And that's a reference to every believer here. Paul has already told us that as Christians, we are raised up new in Christ. Spiritually speaking, the old man, the inner man has died with Christ and been raised up new with Christ. That's Romans chapter 6. But Paul makes a point here that is important for every believer to understand. We still have this body of flesh. We still have our humanity and we still have a problem with sin. As we look at these verses, beginning in verse 18, down through the rest of the chapter, we're going to break it into the next two segments. The will of the believer desires to do what is right. The inner man wants, submits to, recognizes, praises God for the righteousness of his law. The will of the believer is to do what is right, but we do what is wrong. We struggle with sin. This is the second repetition in verses 18 to 20. Begins with another dramatic declaration. Notice the words carefully at the beginning, verse 18. He uses a lot of drama that throws us off for just a moment until we take this statement in the context of the whole. He follows that dramatic declaration with the evidence for the statement. Let me prove it to you, he says. Let me show you what I mean. And he uses his own life, which not only exemplifies what he says, but it's a testimony of every believer's life as well. Just this week in the news, there was a very disappointing bit of counsel that was given on a radio call-in show by a very well-known and solid biblical pastor. And this pastor strongly support what many of us believe God's Word clearly teaches on marriage, what it is and what it is not. And the caller asked this pastor for counsel saying, if I'm a Christian, should I go and support this very ungodly marriage? And much to a lot of people's surprise, including my own, the pastor said, yes, you should go. That is an example of one that knows the law of God and firms the law of God on marriage, but gives counsel contrary to the law of God. 
Paul openly admits to the weakness of his humanity here, but he does not support it. If anything, he speaks against it. He condemns it as a sin against God, as sin that believers must take action against. These are the verses before us, beginning in verse 18. Notice what he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is a dramatic statement. The Apostle Paul is making that statement. It's forceful language that tells tells us that Paul was not at all content with compromise, even in his own life. Imagine what Paul was like at that time. If we were to look at his life, we would see a man that was, we would say, very faithful and devoted to the cross of Christ. We would point out very little sin in this man, but he knew what was in himself. And he wasn't happy even with the smallest amount of compromise. So where there is sin, he's saying this is sin. It does not align with the righteousness, the holiness, and the goodness of God's law. And so he opens with this dramatic dramatic graphic language here in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is where we begin, verse 8. Knowing the flesh. Knowing the flesh. And if Paul knows this, If he declares, for I know nothing good dwells in me, then he means for the church to know this as well. Though the previous account of Paul's conflict with the law found him unable to stop sinning, verse 14, 17, he couldn't stop sinning altogether. In this section, the battle with the flesh continues, but here he struggles to do the things the law requires. And where in the previous verses, Paul confesses he was in bondage to sin, here the battle with the flesh is that there is nothing good found in it. Nothing good is found in the flesh. Now this sounds quite strange from a man that has been made a new creation in Christ, as chapter 6 taught. Yet as we've noted before, Paul has made clear distinction between the spiritual man that has been made alive in Christ and the body of flesh where sin still dwells. He makes that distinction here again in verse 18. This is again the repetition. When he says that nothing good dwells in him, this is because of the sin that dwells in him stated back in verse 17. But then he makes certain that we know It's the flesh that I'm talking about. Notice how he qualifies. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. So we know right away he's not talking about the spiritual inner man that has been raised alive in Christ. He's talking about his humanness, his humanity, the flesh that we still have to contend with. In one sense, Paul repeats what he's already said But in another sense, he now goes beyond saying simply that sin dwells in me. The problem is much greater than that. Sin dwells in us such that nothing good dwells within our fleshly humanity as a result. Can that possibly be accurate? Of course, Paul is not referring here to the spiritual nature. He's already qualified this. Because that is now inhabited by the Spirit of Christ. He could never say that nothing good dwells in his inner man because the Holy Spirit lives there. But is it true that nothing good dwells within our flesh because sin dwells there? When we stand back and we look at the whole account of chapter 6 and 7, again, the context. 
it becomes more understandable, I believe. In our flesh, we cannot obey God perfectly in anything. Are every one of our thoughts and words always pure and righteous? The fleshly part of us could never make such a claim. And as we stated last week in our human humanity, our humanness, can any of us make the claim that today I will stop sinning and I will sin no more? No, we couldn't say that. Can we boast of loving perfectly? Even loving our enemies perfectly. Can we trust in God such that we never falter in our faith? That we never question God? That we never think God is not paying attention to me? Or that we take matters into our own hands? You see, compared to the goodness of God's law, Paul is saying, in our goodness, we can't, we can't measure up. Not in the flesh. The second half of verse 18 then goes on to explain further the distinction between the flesh and the spirit. For the willing is present in me. The inner man, the will has been changed. We desire, we will to obey God. But the doing of it, he said, is another matter. The doing of the good, I can't do it perfectly. The willing in Paul is a reference to the desire of his heart to conform to the will of God. He has already expressed this desire back in verse 16 where he says, I agree with the law. I confess its goodness. This willingness to obey speaks to the spirit of the believer that desires holiness because they've been raised up with Christ and every true believer here desires that. We desire, we have a passion a longing to be right with God, to walk in holiness. But the flesh also has desires, doesn't it? And those desires are contrary to the resurrected desires of our spirit. Again, Paul is not talking about a habitual pattern of sin or rebellion against Christ. He's not saying that he was entirely incapable of doing anything acceptable to God. His meaning is that his flesh is incapable of being perfectly conformed to the law, a law that is holy and righteous. This is where he again is, is comparing the law as that which is spiritual. It's perfect. There's no flaw in God's commandments. But can I keep them perfectly? Paul is saying in the inner man, I sure desire it. But the outer man, the humanity, the flesh, I don't. If we are as honest with ourselves as was Paul, we too must confess nothing good dwells in our flesh as God sees goodness. Nothing good dwells in our flesh as God sees goodness. And that's what his law declares. It declares the goodness of God. Paul was merely accurately describing his humanity. Robert Haldane, the early theologian of the 18th century, wrote of these verses Whoever has a proper knowledge of himself will be convinced that naturally there is nothing good in him. And by naturally, he means in the flesh. Whoever has a proper knowledge of himself, this is what we will know because this is what Paul knows. Verse 18, for I know. And what he knows he's teaching the church, you should know this too about your flesh and the contest between spirit and flesh. Whoever has a proper knowledge of himself will be convinced convinced that humanly speaking there is nothing good in him this brings us to verse 19 
and the practicing of that which is worthless. When Paul uses the word wicked or evil here, it is a word that means depraved, evil, wicked, or worthless, which highlights that the efforts of the flesh that fail to meet the standards of the law are of no worth to God. They're of no worth to God. Following the pattern of the previous verse, verse 19 then briefly presents the evidence for his dramatic claim in verse 18. Because we can draw back and say, Paul, are you saying there's nothing good in your flesh? He says, let me show you. Let me show you what I mean. And he goes to verse 19, for the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very worthless or evil that I do not want. Just look at my life. He says, I don't do it perfectly. The law is perfect. I don't do it perfect. The law is absolutely good. I don't do absolute goodness. And Paul would have shined in these areas. But all he's doing is confessing, I am not perfect in the flesh. And while in verse 15, being a man of flesh, he could not stop doing wrong, here he cannot do what is right by God's law because of his flesh. So he's looking at a slightly different angle, but saying the same thing. Before, he's saying, I'm practicing evil all the time. Now I can't do what is right, not in my flesh. The Christian is willing to do what is right. The desire is there to obey the laws of Christ. But there is a problem with our humanity in that nothing good dwells in our flesh. So while we may desire obedience, what we very often actually do is evil that we do not desire. This is, again, not the consistent behavior of the true believer. It's not the habitual pattern of the believer. Nor should Paul's confession here comfort any one of us to the extent that we continue to sin. Well, if Paul does it, I'm okay, I guess. I can keep doing this. The very reason that Paul is saying these things is to highlight to the Christian, we have a battle that we need to fight, but we cannot do it successfully on our own power. So it's going to lead us right into chapter 8, where he says we live by the Spirit's power. We have the ability in Christ to not do what he's describing here. This passage is not meant to make us feel comfortable with sin, and I would argue that a true believer cannot be comfortable with sin for long. And as verse 24 says, this passage meant to show how wretched is the flesh that holds us captive to sin. It's meant to inspire the believer to not trust in his own strength to conquer sin, but to walk according to the Spirit and in his power. Verse 19 identifies the weakness that is still in our humanity and is given as proof that perfect goodness won't be resourced in our flesh. You won't find it there. It has to be found in the Spirit of God. And third, as we're moving to verse 20, Paul assesses the fault. What's at fault here? And again, he, he repeats himself a second time. So look at verse 20, he says, But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it. But here's the source. But sin which dwells in me. He's already stated this. He's stating it again. Paul again reminds us where we can uh, find the fault here, where we can find the problem. In our flesh, sin still dwells there. The will of the resurrected believer 
is to be faithful in obedience to Christ. But as we've stated before, and this verse again affirms, when believers do things contrary to the law, as Paul says, it is not me doing it. The me that's not doing it, that's the resurrected believer. The inner man, the spirit of the believer that's been made new in Christ and inhabited by the spirit of Christ. It's not me, he said. But what is the problem? The sin that's still in my flesh, in my humanity. The personal reference here is to the spirit of the inner man that has been raised up with Christ so that Paul can say, it's not me doing it. He's not denying his sin here. He's not lacking the ability to take responsibility for his failures. He's just rightly dividing the humanity here from the spiritual. God has raised us up. If we're here in Christ, redeemed by the blood of Christ by faith, then the spirit of the inner man has been raised up, set free from the bondage of sin, but the flesh still has a problem. Sin is still there. And when the flesh entices us, there's a powerful draw to obey the flesh contrary to the will of the resurrected believer. He's identifying the conflict that every one of us as believers struggle with. And it's simply restating what verse 17 concluded as the source of our struggle to live by the laws of Christ. What complicates this? What makes this difficult for us? Sin is still in our flesh. A law that we agree with is the law of God. We desire to obey it. The source of our struggle, again, is sin that dwells in our fleshly humanity. And this brings us to the last portion of what we're going to look at this morning, verse 21 to 25. A wretched state, Paul describes here, but with a glorious end. And this is a third repetition, a third movement found in this passage. Paul gives us a summary expression at the end that we're going to consider when we're done here with these verses. But it prepares us, these verses prepare us to move into chapter 8. So I want us to look at those verses again. Look at verse 21 down through the end of the chapter. Paul said, For I joyfully, oh, I find then, I'm sorry, verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, this is the summary statement. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Here Paul frames our struggle with sin in the terms of principles. And that word principle is literally in Greek the word namas or law. Paul is stating these are laws, these are principles. We're bound to these things. So I think it is best in verse 21 to see that word principle, if you're using my translation, to see that as law because it's exactly the same word as the law that Paul uses throughout chapter 7. Here, there are, again, three movements that I want us to consider. The first in verse 21 to 22, he makes a declaration of the contradiction that he sees here. 
Paul makes contradicting declarations regarding his own sanctification that he names. Now, they're not, ton- con- they're not contradictions as if they negate one another. But there are two laws active within the believer that contradict one another. One law involves the activity of sin in a believer's life that Paul has described so far. The other law belongs to God and is that which the believer desires and obeys under the Spirit's enabling grace. The sin that dwells within our flesh and that entices us to violate God's law is a law of its own, he said. This is the principle, and and he doesn't like it. He doesn't approve of it, and it wars against the law of God. It's an evil presence, or that which is depraved and wicked, he calls it. Paul says this law is present in him, though he wants to do good, which is found in God's law. And again, we see the expressive language that he uses here. The law of evil over the law of goodness. And the goodness is what the believer desires. Where Paul says that he joyfully concurs, he means that he rejoices in. Or he feels satisfaction in the law of God. This is where my heart is. It's where my passion is. My will, my desire is to walk in the ways of the Lord. Read through that big chapter in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. And what do you see again and again? I love the laws of God. I delight in the laws of God. Paul is right there with the psalmist. But notice that this joyful embracing of God's law is in the inner man or the spirit of the believer. And he names it there, the inner man. I desire that. This is where my passion is. This is where my heart is. And the use of this term adds merit to this passage speaking about true believers. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul makes a distinction between the inner man and the outer man. These are the words of Paul from 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, speaking of the flesh, our humanity... Yet our inner man, the spiritual being, is being renewed day by day. So when we think of the inner man, this is the contrast to the outer man that is aging, becoming more broken, it's becoming frailer. In other words, our flesh, our humanity, it's breaking down. The inner man is the spirit of the believer that has been made alive in Christ. It's not going to break down. It's not going to die. It's becoming more alive all the time. It's been raised up with Christ. It is this inner man that rejoices in the law of God. But there's an opposing law within our flesh that contradicts this passion for righteousness. It is sin that dwells within us that empowers the Christian to act contrary to our love for God's ways. The fact that Paul makes this distinction between the inner and the outer man affirms again he's describing a believer's struggle with sin. This is not a picture of an unregenerate person. This is a picture of a believer that is struggling with sin and wants to. He desires to walk in the ways of the Lord. And that fact that both the inner and outer man are subject to two opposing laws makes a clear declaration regarding the struggle that we have with our progressive sanctification. You and I live in this contradiction. As we progress in Christ, it would come easy to us if it wasn't for this warfare. And this is where Paul brings us verse 23 
to the evidence of this conflict. Do you want me to prove what I said? Do you want evidence for what I've just said? Verse 23, look at how he uses this word, word language, your difficult, gra graphic, dramatic words. For I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Those are strong words again. Waging war and a prisoner. And it's those kind of words again that causes some scholars to drop back and say, who's Paul talking about here? Because in chapter 6, we've been set free. Now he's talking prisoner again. There's a war going on. But I think every one of us, again, is that, are, that are believers, we understand this language. Because we're in this battle. The law of evil that Paul has just described is that which is set in the members of his body. And it does combat with the law of God that his spirit joyfully embraces. And again, the strong wording of this word tells us the serious nature of this conflict. It is a waging war and a sin that is dwelling in his humanity that has him as a prisoner of the law of sin. In other words, it has a powerful hold on the believer. The mind here involves the intellect, the will, and our understanding. And using the mind here in connection with law of God, I think can be a bit tricky for us to understand in that we know that our minds do not always cooperate with the law of God, and very often it can desire what the flesh wants. And that mind yet is a part of the spirit that has been raised up. But I think the general idea appears to be that the flesh, where sin dwells, can often undermine our minds, our desire, our will to do what we should in Christ. As John MacArthur writes, our minds are not always spiritual, and our bodies are not always sinful. In other words, even though we've been raised up with Christ, our minds don't always cooperate. And sometimes the sin that dwells in our flesh has a great influence, a powerful influence, on even our will and our minds. This is the nature of the warfare that is being waged by the believer. The flesh is held as a prisoner. Our humanity is a prisoner in that we cannot fully or completely stop sinning. We have the ability in Christ to say no to sin. This is something the world doesn't have. And this ability grows stronger and more frequently as we grow in Christ and we depend more fully on the power of his spirit. But there is a serious defect in our humanity nonetheless in that we cannot completely stop sinning in all occasions. And we can't do goodness perfectly. We don't do righteousness perfectly. We don't do holiness perfectly, not in our flesh. So this brings us to verse 24 and 25, where an opposition of laws is confirmed by Paul. Evidence, again, is offered for his dramatic statements. I found it difficult to find a suitable heading here for verse 24 and 25, so I've just put it as opposition of laws that are confirmed by Paul. But as in the previous two declarations, Paul names the source as sin that dwells within. Here the two laws find their sources. The law of evil that holds us captive in the flesh comes from the sin that indwells the humanity. He's made that statement now three times. 
The law of God that our inner man desires comes from the gospel of justification by faith. And he's going to declare this in just a moment. But another dramatic expression is used by Paul to open up verse 24. See it? Wretched man that I am. Strong words again for this apostle to describe himself in the present tense. This is a man that's filled with the Holy Spirit and has undergone an amazing transformation. Yet even the occasional failings that this saintly, spiritual man struggled with has caused him to grow such a hatred and disgust for the sin that still plagues his humanity. That he cries out, just contemplating what he's been writing here to the church in Rome. Wretched man that I am. Again, if we were to witness the life and the ministry of this man, Paul, during this time, I would speculate we would see him as an extremely holy man that we couldn't quite measure up to. But I can say this is what true maturity in Christ produces in the believer. The more we grow in Christ, is it not true the more sensitive we become to even the, the least of sins? Here is the Apostle Paul crying out, wretched man that I am. Why? Because he doesn't like compromise with sin on any level, and yet he still does. Such a humility of self because of occasional moments of sin, even though the Spirit of God was transforming him in the glory of the Savior. This is what growth in Christ looks like. We talk about the self-esteem movement, that that's supposed to be healthy. Yet we see a healthy, mature man of God, an apostle of the gospel, declaring wretched man that I am. Apparently, he hasn't learned Freud too well. At the same time, Paul knows how to respond to this tragic self. He doesn't leave himself there. This self-evaluation, he does not leave himself there. He asks the question immediately following, who will set me free from this body of death? In other words, wretched man that I am, but I'm not going to deliver myself. I can't get myself out of this. But he knows where to go. Who will set me free from the body of this death? He asks the question, but he knows the answer. And he declares it in verse 25, which brings you right into an understanding of the gospel. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, Messiah, our Lord. The death that Paul speaks of here cannot be a spiritual death because he's just assured us of being spiritually alive in Christ back in chapter 6. So who's gonna, what, what death is he talking about when he said, who will set me free from the body of this death? Spiritually, he's already alive. The spirit isn't going to die again. The body of death he refers to is the physical body of sin that is subject to physical death in all men. That's the judgment against our flesh. All of us will die, including believers. The source of the law of evil is the indwelling sin within the believer's flesh. But Paul assures the believer there is hope for Christians in their physical presence in spite of this, and the source of this hope causes him to give thanks to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The rescue of the fallen inner man has already been accomplished by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the resurrection, the rescue of our fallen flesh, the outer man is yet to come. 
and it is the source of this rescue that is found in the gospel itself. The source of our spiritual res rescue, where is it? It's in the gospel. Where is the source of our physical rescue, our physical resurrection? It also is in the gospel, isn't it? The word of God tells us that the day will come when our physical bodies will be, will be raised with Christ just as our spirit has been raised. And the source of this resurrection is the gospel of God's Son who bore our sins on the cross. He died to make full payment for sin and rose again from the dead to secure eternal life for all who believe. Believers are made spiritually alive the moment they come to faith. But the promise of God through the cross of his son is that the believer's body will also be raised to eternal life and raised in glory. There's going to come an end to this fleshly problem of sin. There's going to come an end to the sin dwelling in the flesh. And it will take place at the resurrection. Would you join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for just a moment? It is important that we see these words as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and you're going to see a similar wording, a similar tone that Paul writes here in Romans as he does to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 53 down through the end of the chapter. Paul is speaking about the flesh, the humanity, our humanness here, our physical bodies. For this perishable, speaking of the body, must put on the imperishable. This is describing the resurrection. And the mortal shall put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The source of our death physically is sin. And the power of sin is the law. It's the law that showed us how bad sin is. But thanks be to God. Notice the praise again. But thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I finish with these words so that we know that our struggle with sin is not in vain. The battle that we face every day with sin is not in vain. Paul caps off Romans 7 by summarizing the warfare that we are waging against sin. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, I serve the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. There is a sense in which this is a kind of negative note to finish the chapter. But this only introduces us with the glory that Paul intended us to end with on chapter 8 and verse 1. Remember, there were no chapters and verse numbers in this letter. Paul immediately follows this with what? Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He summarizes chapter 7 with the description of the struggle we have with sin. And this causes us to see the wretched nature of sin and what it does to our humanness. But the glory of this warfare is that even our flesh will be redeemed by the work of Christ on the cross just as our spirit was redeemed. The inner man of the believer is already raised to eternal life. 
And according to the word of Christ, the day will come when our struggle with sin will be over. And we too will give thanks to God for his rescuing work through his son because our physical bodies will be raised to eternal life, imperishable, raised in glory, no longer indwelt with sin, and the battle will be over. It is because of the cross that we've put our faith in, that we are exhorted, as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, we are exhorted, therefore be steadfast in your walk of faith. Be immovable when it comes to our obedience to righteousness, always abounding in the work that God has given us to do. Paul is giving the church a charge. Don't give up. Don't surrender. Stay with the fight because the glory of the physical resurrection is coming just as it's always happened, already happened with our spirit. The glory of the resurrection comes. Now, just some thoughts that kind of close out this chapter and lead us into our communion worship this morning. And I'm going to repeat this because I've been told I go too fast to fill in blanks. We must know the nature of our warfare. We must know the nature of our warfare. Paul repeats himself three times. The Holy Spirit repeats this struggle three times so we understand the serious nature of our warfare. The spirit against the flesh. The law of God against the desires of the flesh. We, we must know the nature of our warfare. If we're going to progress in our sanctification, we need to know, we need to understand the conflict that we face with our own flesh and the sin that dwells within us still. I believe this is why Paul is repetitive here. This is important. Know the nature of your warfare. Second, we clearly are to keep our eyes fixed on the glory to come. We keep our eyes fixed on the glory to come. Passages like 1 Corinthians 15 teach us that in addition to understanding the truth about our sin struggle, it is the promise of the resurrection that encourages us to stay in the fight, to keep after this sin conflict. It's easy to get discouraged by something that will continue to be a problem with us for all our, our entire lives, perhaps. Just give up. Just give way to it. And it's easy to go to Romans chapter 7 and say, well, see, Paul struggled with it. I can live with that. I can live with my sin. That's not what Paul is teaching us here. We can stay in the fight. We can progress in our faith so long as we keep our eyes fixed on the glory to come. And third, between now and then, between now and that glory to come, we give thanks continually. Notice how Paul ends this thing. Giving thanks for what? To God the Father who deems sinners and his son Jesus Christ who is our Lord. Between now and then, we give thanks continually because our God redeems. Our God saves. He rescues sinners. We've already been rescued on the inner man. And the physical, it's going to be rescued as well. It's going to be raised immortal and in glory and struggling with sin no more. So we give thanks continually. This morning as we gather around the communion table to take together the memorial given to us of the cross, Paul is 
giving to us an understanding of the wretched nature of sin's power within. But more than that, he knew the power of God to overcome sin. The power of the cross to change our lives. And this power comes to those who believe. It is God that provided our rescue through the redemption of his son. It is Jesus Christ that gave his life for those who trust him as their savior and who surrender to him as their Lord. Thankfulness to God is more needed than discouragement. It's more needed than self-pity. It's more needed than wallowing in our sin. It's certainly more needed than continuing in our sins. So we give thanks continually for the God that rescues us from our sin. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that reminds us the warfare that we're in. It reminds us of the struggle that we have, even as believers that have been redeemed and been raised up with Christ. We still have this contest, this struggle before us. And the very fact that you, Father, have repeated this several times for us to understand tells us how important, how significant this struggle is. And it so appropriately points us to chapter 8, where we find the power to overcome in the spirit that you've given to us. Therefore, give us knowledge, give us understanding, and help us to apply this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand now as we sing and prepare our hearts for communion? I know 
so gracious and extreme was strong enough to come and fight for me to go through hell and down into the If you've attended this church for any measure of time, you know that we don't rush into or rush through communion. This is a time when we want to be careful to meditate on the Savior and what he did. I'd like to challenge us this morning with our thoughts from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, verses that are familiar to most of us. The author writes, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, that you, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The subject of our past several studies in Romans 7 has been quite sobering, to be sure. It's enough to say, it's enough to recognize Satan is against us. It's enough to know that the world is going to reject us because it rejects Christ. But Paul is informing us of the battle that we're going to face with our own amends to us are several things as believers that we want to consider here at the communion table. It says we're to cast aside sin and everything in life that slows down our spiritual progress so that we can run the race of life with endurance. It directs us not to grow weary or to wear out or grow tired of the walk of faith that we're in. Much of life is filled with struggles. But the encouragement for believers in these hardships is found in a couple other commandments that are in these three verses in Hebrews 12. Number one, we're to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, who endured the cross. And second, we are to consider him who suffered at the hands of sinners. This is exactly what we are doing 
when we take the bread and the cup together. We're fixing our eyes on Christ. We're fixing our eyes on what he did on the cross for our sins. And we're considering him. We're thinking about, we're pondering, meditating on the one who suffered. Suffered at the hands of sinners. This is exactly what we do here with the bread and the cup. We're fixing our spiritual eyes on Christ and his suffering on the cross. And what do we see when we fix our eyes on him? The author of this letter writes that Jesus went to the cross driven not by sobriety, not by anger, not by revenge, but by joy. The joy of the cross that was set before him. And what is this joy that verse 2 speaks of? Certainly the pain, the agony of the cross, and the defilement of carrying our sin was not the source of his joy. The source of his joy couldn't have been the wrath of the Father that was turned against him because he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But rather the joy that compelled the Savior to take our sin on the cross, a cross of his suffering, was that he would rescue all those that the Father had given to him. He would display openly the love, the grace, and the mercy of God. He would rescue sinners from the judgment that we deserved. And he would grant to us as believers the ability, the power in Christ to live according to his righteousness. That was the joy of the Savior. As we're taking the cup, the bread this morning, fixing our eyes on him, we see a Savior that was happy to suffer, to deliver us. The joy that compelled the Savior as I've just named, are just a few of the reasons that we see here. But as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we fix our eyes on him, and we consider at this moment what he endured for us as we're reminded of his joy, the joy of the Savior to do this for his people. And for this same reason, you and I are encouraged, don't grow weary and lose heart, but we can rejoice in battling sin. We can rejoice in this warfare because of the cross. We already own the victory in Christ. Yeah, we'll keep struggling with sin, but we know what's coming, and we know what he's done for us so far. So let us together, as we take the bread and the cup, fix our eyes on Christ and consider him who endured for us, and he did it with joy.
If you are a believer in Christ this morning, you have confidence that by faith and not by your own works, you've trusted in the sacrifice of Christ, his atoning sacrifice on the cross, then we encourage you to partake with us. But if you're not a believer, you're unsure about your salvation, we would just ask that you would pass on the bread and the cup this morning so that we don't in any way dishonor Christ in his sacrifice. Paul writes to the church these instructions that we follow. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's do that. Let's give thanks to our Father. Father in heaven, we thank you for the body of your Son, that he was willing to set aside his glories in heaven to take on the humble humanity of a servant, a slave that would die on the cross, that would serve us by his own death on the cross. And carrying our sins would become defiled with our wickedness, our rebellion, our lawlessness. And he would die to make full payment for sin. Thank you that he rose again from the, from the grave, securing our victory and securing our life. So this morning we give testament we give remembrance to the Savior in his humanity by the taking of the bread this morning. In Christ's name, amen. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's give thanks the blood of Christ. Father in heaven, we are grateful that your son was willing to pour out his blood, willing, willingly surrendering his spirit so that he might make full payment for our sins. We recognize that what is in our hands this morning is just a picture. It's just juice, but it represents something that was precious to you and that was necessary for our salvation. So we give thanks to you for being a redeeming God. We give thanks to your Son for being a sufficient Savior. We give thanks to your Spirit for raising us to newness in life because he is resurrected as well. And we give you this praise and thanksgiving and worship in Christ's name. Amen. Close, let's stand as we sing Hallelujah, what a Savior.
done so again around the communion table. So let's join our hearts together one more time, closing in prayer, praising our God together, worshiping him, giving thanks to him, and asking him to bless us as we leave this place. Father in heaven, like Paul, we confess wretched men, wretched women that we are. Who's going to set us free from the body of this death? And you have answered that in the cross of your son. So we say in response, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray, that we worship, we give thanks, and we ask for your blessing. Amen.